Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Barbara Berglund Sokolov. If you like my podcast, you might also like the Joy of History Book Club. It's a monthly event that I host on Zoom. It's the traditional book club reimagined. It's part graduate seminar, part Parisian salon, inclusive, low stakes, and high reward. Everyone's welcome, whether or not you've read the book. You can go to thejoyofhistory.com to learn more. Today, we'll be talking to William Souter about his book, Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck, published by W.W. Norton in 2020. Bill is the author of four books, including a biography of John James Audubon that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Mad at the World is coming out in paperback next month, and it also happens to be the November selection for the Joy of History Book Club, where Bill will be joining us for a Q&A session. Bill Souter, welcome to the show. Hi, Barbara. Thanks so much for having me. This is, um, uh, this is wonderful. You're so welcome. It's just great to have you here. So um, to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in John Steinbeck and um, and why you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, like many authors, uh, it, it, it always feels to me like the next book is a logical extension of the last book because there's usually some sort of connection or some sort of spark that you find in the course of doing a book that leads you to begin thinking about the next one. And that was true in the case of John Steinbeck. And so the the book that I published before this was a biography of Rachel Carson. And Rachel Carson, I think many of your listeners will know, but for those who don't, is sort of the godmother of the environmental movement. She was um, a, a very famous and beloved writer in the 1950s who was known mainly for writing these beautiful uh, poetic books about the sea uh, that really made her famous. And then um, in a big departure in 1962, she published uh, a book about the threat from uh, chemical pesticides called Silent Spring. And Silent Spring was a best-selling book and um, a book that had enormous influence over public policy, uh, public health, uh, agriculture, uh, the chemicals industry, and really set the stage for a lot of the uh, environmental regulation and law that came into uh, existence in the 1960s and 1970s. That book was probably directly responsible for the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which actually happened under the Nixon administration. So Rachel Carson is really a towering figure in uh, environmental history. And um, But she also wrote these books about the ocean. And uh, one of them was a book called The Edge of the Sea, which had started out to be um, a guidebook to the seashore, you know, sort of a pocket size 
um, uh, indexed guide that you might use if you were beachcombing and you wanted to identify a shell or a crab or something like that. And uh, of course, as she always did, Carson thought of this subject in larger, uh, uh, more expansive terms. And she ended up writing this really lovely book that is much more than a guidebook. But it was a very organized taxonomy, too, to the seashore. And she modeled it in part on a book called Between Pacific Tides. And that's a book about the Pacific seashore that was organized in a kind of a radical new way. It was organized ecologically. So rather than have a chapter about um, uh, uh, sea anemones and then a chapter about urchins and then a chapter about barnacles, all these invertebrate species that lived in the in the tidal zone were instead kind of cataloged in a sort of a stratified way. So that you would have a chapter about the animals that live in the zone that is always underwater. And then a chapter about those organisms that live in a zone that is underwater at high tide, but exposed at low tide and so on, you know, kind of up the ladder, if you will, of the, of the shoreline. Um, and what that did was it, rather than um, look at uh, the things that live in this region based on what type of animal they are, um, uh, that book looked at them in terms of the ecosystem that they um, were embedded in and the other organisms that they interacted with. And Carson thought this was a big breakthrough. So um, this is the middle of the 20th century. This is when ecology is beginning to um, really start to be understood and taken more seriously by biologists and other scientists. And uh, so Carson, again, decided to use Between Pacific Tides as a model for the edge of the sea, her book. Well, the author of Between Pacific Tides was a self-taught marine biologist named Ed Ricketts, who lived and worked in Monterey, California, and did most of his research in and around Monterey Bay. And uh, Ricketts was a, a, a real character uh, and is probably most noted for being John Steinbeck's best friend uh, and mentor and greatest influence. Uh, Ed Ricketts was the model for Doc in Cannery Row, and he was the model for several characters in uh, some of Steinbeck's other books. They were, um, uh, they were extremely close, and, uh, and for a time in the 1930s, when John Steinbeck lived on the Monterey Peninsula, uh, they really ran what amounted to a kind of a salon out of Ed Ricketts' lab on Cannery Row. And uh, everybody wanted to know John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts, and everybody wanted to hang out at the lab on Saturday night when there was this kind of never-ending party that sometimes moved to other places, but always seemed to start at uh, Ricketts' place of, uh, of employment. He ran, in addition to, to writing books about, uh, about the uh, seashore, uh, Ricketts ran a biological supply service. So he sent um, samples around to high school students for dissection or prepared slides so they could look at different sort of biological um, uh, samples. And uh, the, the lab was where he did this work, and the lab was also where everybody hung out. And so in the course of uh, doing some research into Ed Ricketts to, that would inform my book about Rachel Carson, I started to get intrigued with, with John Steinbeck. And um, the two of them had collaborated on a book called Sea of Cortez, which was this um, month-long collecting expedition that the two of them uh, financed and headed up into the Gulf of California, 
where they traveled up and down both coasts of that uh, body of water and, and stopping in at various places and collecting in the tide pools there to um, uh, basically do for um, the Sea of Cortez what uh, what Ricketts had already done for Monterey Bay. And that's a fascinating book. And it really, uh, Steinbeck wrote most of the narrative, although he relied to some extent on some of uh, Ricketts' notes. And it's, it's, um, it's a really compelling portrait of a friendship, uh, of an emerging field of science. And uh, it just made me really, really intrigued to know more about these two guys. And uh, like everybody else, I'd read some Steinbeck in high school and, and, um, uh, knew a little of his work, but not uh, deeply. And uh, but he comes from uh, you know a period in time that interests me. And so uh, I started poking around as I was finishing up the Carson book. I was beginning to read or reread John Steinbeck. And and uh, by the time uh, by the time I needed to figure out what the next project was going to be, it was pretty clear to me that it was going to be Steinbeck. Great. So um, before we dig into John Steinbeck, let's. Let's take a minute to talk about biography, um, since you've got a few under your belt. Um, what draws you to biography? Uh, well, uh, several things. There's never one simple answer to these kinds of questions. Uh, uh, to begin with, I, my broad interests include um, uh, history and natural history, uh, particularly biology. Uh, I'm also interested in ecology. I'm interested in the environment. I'm interested in mid 20th century American history. Uh, I was born in 1949, so that's kind of where I'm from. Um, I get that period of time and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm also interested in writers because that's what I have done my entire life. And, um, and I'm interested in the process and, and the business and the art of all kinds of writing. And so I tend to look for subjects who embody all those things. And so biography is a natural, um, it's a natural field for me because you can, you can find people to write about who touch on those areas as John Steinbeck does, as Rachel Carson does. And, um, and the other reason is a little bit more mechanical, but extremely important. Uh, I, for the first part of my career, I was in journalism. And uh, journalism is about storytelling. And one of the things you learn in journalism is how to recognize a story when you see one. And also you learn the value of telling stories as opposed to simply talking about a topic. And the great value of telling a story is that you hopefully, if you do it well, entice the reader to keep going. Uh, in, you know, convince the reader that wanting to know what happens next is important. And biography is perfectly set up to do that because uh, you begin with a protagonist. You have a main character. You don't have some abstract ensemble of people that might or might not be related. You have, you have the star of the story to begin with. And then because you're writing about a life, uh, a life is a narrative that unfolds. It, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can write about people who are still living. I, I never have, so I always kind of knew what that ending would be. But, um, but you have the essential ingredients of a good story. So um, I think those are the things that sort of drew me to biography. I also found that I just had kind of a natural affinity for the process. There's different ways you can that you can reconstruct someone's life, but 
in many cases, and probably in most cases, you're working from some sort of paper trail or residual evidence of, of the person's life, <clears throat> excuse me, in the form of letters or diaries or journals. Those have often been collected into archives and in, in, uh, usually at academic institutions, but other, other places uh, that you can, where you can visit and where you can immerse yourself in um, uh, this paper trail that points to what happened in someone's uh in someone's life. And um, it, it turned out that when I started doing that, I really liked that kind of work. I found it um, uh, rewarding. I found it absorbing. And uh, I found that I, I was just never, um, I was never bored or at a loss with uh, this process of kind of untangling the record to figure out what actually happened in someone's life. Uh, so for all those reasons, I, I became a biographer and, um, uh, you know, hopefully became a reasonably good one. So um, let's let's talk about Steinbeck's life. Um, let's talk about his story that you've um, unraveled in this wonderful book for us. Can you tell us a little bit about his background and some of the key events, the the people, the experiences that led him to pursue the sure. path that he did? Sure. Uh, Steinbeck was born in 1902 in the town of Salinas, Kansas. Uh, sorry, Salinas, uh, California. Uh, which is, um, uh, you know, about 75 miles south of San Francisco. Uh, and it is uh, uh, the county seat of Monterey County, which is a very large county uh, that uh, reaches all the way over to the Pacific Ocean and includes the Monterey Peninsula and, uh, and uh, most of big, the Big Sur region to the south of the Monterey Peninsula. So very large area. And uh, the Salinas Valley, of course, is a, a very um, uh, intense, intensely uh, farmed region. It's one of the most productive uh, agricultural regions in the entire country and probably in the entire world. It, it was originally very, very arid there. And uh, but but uh, there is a good uh, water table beneath the Salinas Valley, and uh, with the uh, uh, development of irrigation, um, that region was uh, really kind of transformed into a major producer of uh, crops like lettuce and almonds and garlic and uh, vegetables. And so um, a very agrarian region. Salinas was a small but fairly prosperous town. Steinbeck's father, who was also named John, was of German immigrant stock. Uh, he was he had various jobs uh, early in Steinbeck's life. But by the time Steinbeck was around 10, his father had become the treasurer of the county of Monterey and uh, worked in an office in downtown Salinas. And uh, he was a uh, he was sort of a gloomy man who felt that he had never uh, achieved something. He could never say what that was, but never achieved something uh, meaningful in his life. And he was he was given to periods of uh, uh, depression and uh kind of antisocial um, uh, behavior. And uh, I think Steinbeck recognized this in his father at an early age. He certainly recognized it later on uh, when his father told him that he was glad that Steinbeck had become a writer because it meant that his son was going to have a more interesting life, a more rewarding life than he had had. Um, Steinbeck's mother, Olive, was um, she was a doer. She was a joiner. She belonged to all of the uh, ladies clubs and um, 
did all the activities that the the wives of um, uh, the time were expected to do. She actually worked down at the uh, treasurer's office with um, with her husband. Sometimes this was a um, a common practice back then where um, the wives of people who, uh, of men who held public office would be given some kind of a, um, an easy job to do and, and a little bit of pay to do it. And uh, not that much was expected other than that they would occasionally show up and, and kind of be there to, to help out in some way. Um, very middle-class family. He had three siblings. He had two older sisters, Esther and Beth, who both really adored John and a younger sister named Mary. Uh, who spent all of her time with John. They were sort of inseparable as kids. And as a young boy, uh, there were a couple of things about Steinbeck that kind of would continue on throughout his life. One was that he was he was very he was a solitary kid. He had friends and um, he would do things with other boys, but he often kept off to himself, particularly in school. Uh, he would, when it was recess time, uh, he would go outside with everybody else, but then kind of go off on his own and, uh, just want to be alone. And often after school, he, uh, if any of the kids who knew him would stop by his house, uh, to see if he could do something, he would, he would plead that he was doing homework or that he was busy or that he couldn't come out. Uh, it later turned out that what he was doing from probably, uh, 10 or 11 was that he was writing. He was, he was writing stories in, um, his bedroom in this kind of large Queen Anne style house that his family lived in. Um, so early on, he was interested in stories and in storytelling. He loved to hear stories about Salinas and about Monterey. His family had a, uh, a little vacation cottage cottage on the Monterey Peninsula in the town of Pacific Grove, which is adjacent to Monterey uh, proper. And uh, in both places, he's always curious to learn about the history, about the people who live there, to hear any kind of story about um, uh, anyone uh, that, um, that he could hear. And he was like a sponge. He absorbed these stories. He remembered them. He could repeat them. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, he was he was kind of a the odd kid out in um, in his cohort growing up in in Salinas, but everybody recognized that he was sharp, as one of his friends put it. That he um, he was always paying attention. He always he was a great listener. He never forgot anything. He was a wonderful mimic. He could whatever someone sounded like, Steinbeck could reproduce either in writing or um, uh, just in sort of repeating what they had said. The other thing about young John Steinbeck that was notable and also about Steinbeck throughout his life is he had almost all the photographs we have of John Steinbeck are in black and white. And so not many people realize this, but he had uh, piercing, deep blue eyes. And although he was never a particularly handsome child and certainly not a uh, handsome as an adult, he did have kind of a rugged virility about him. He was about six feet tall when he was fully grown and and, uh, and was big and kind of raw boned and, and rangy. But he had these very sensitive, uh, uh, appealing, uh, deep blue eyes. And everyone who ever met John Steinbeck said that when he fixed his gaze upon you with those blue eyes. It was a very riveting experience. And, and uh, women found him um, intensely attractive and uh, men found him um, 
uh, kind of heroic almost, uh, someone that they could easily uh, look up to. So uh, Steinbeck was somebody whose future was, if you, when you look at what he was like as a kid and as an adolescent, it's easy to see that he would end up doing what he did end up doing, which was becoming a writer because he wanted to do that from uh, a very early age. He never, ever um, deviated from that. He always wanted to be a writer, even in the early going when it was hard for him and it was unclear whether he had any talent for it. He did attend uh, the university. He went to Stanford uh, on and off over a period of about five years. He never graduated. Um, he was lazy about going to class. He tended to take only the classes that interested him, which were mostly English classes and composition classes. Um, he kind of came and went several times at, at Stanford and was resistant to the idea of uh, conforming to um, uh, the requirements for graduation. And eventually left Stanford in 1925 and sort of set off on his own, although he made some very good friends at Stanford who remained close to him throughout his life. And I think he, I think he did learn some things there about, about writing and about the world that, that played important parts um, in his later life. But he was not, uh, his formal education was very, very haphazard. Uh, and in terms of his writing, like, like all writers in the end, he was self-taught. Uh, you, can, you can get a lot of advice you can get a lot of insight into how writers work and how writers think from other people and from reading. But in the end, the only way to learn to write is to uh, simply do it. Uh, when he was at Stanford, Steinbeck did have one mentor and professor who he um, really worshipped, a, a woman named Edith Miralees who had gone to Stanford herself and was an accomplished writer and, uh, and who taught a legendary class in composition at Stanford. And Steinbeck really thought that she was brilliant. And, um, and she was uh, a wonderful critic of his early work and she en encouraged him in his early work. But um, Edith Mirrelees believed that, that writing was something that you really couldn't teach, that you could only help it. And, uh, and I think that's a wonderful distillation of what, um, uh, learning to write and helping people learn to write is really all about you. You really cannot teach someone how to write. You can only, you can only assist in the process of their own self-education. So uh, that's a little bit about where Steinbeck came from. And uh, you know, that was followed by a long apprenticeship that eventually led to, you know, what I'm sure we'll be talking about here in a little bit. Uh Great. Uh, I think that's fascinating that he was writing from such a young age. So let's um, let's talk about his work, his writing, kind of the 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 corpus of writing that he created throughout his life. Can you um, provide a general overview and maybe a couple of highlights? Sure. Uh, so Steinbeck um, uh made a number of false starts in his career. When he dropped out of Stanford, he moved for a time to New York City. Um, he had an uncle who helped him get a job on one of the uh, big city newspapers out there. That didn't work out. Uh, New York didn't work out. And after uh, a little over a year, he came back to um, he came back to Salinas and and um, and then he got a job through a friend of his from Stanford as a caretaker at for a large house on on the southwestern shore of Lake Tahoe. He's basically the winter 
um, caretaker of this property, although he stayed throughout the summer. And when the family that owned the house was there, he became a kind of uh, guardian to the, their, their children and, um, you know, helped uh, take them swimming and fishing and, and uh, into town and things like that. And, but, but the reason, the main reason that Steinbeck took that job was so that he would have uh, uninterrupted time to work. And in the dead of winter, uh, Lake Tahoe is this place that is is uh, buried in snow and and uh, there's really nothing there except these uh, towering snow drifts and the roaring wind and the um, in the Sierra mountains and and uh, Steinbeck realized that this would be a, a place where he could really be by himself and uh, focus on his writing and so he was up there for a couple of years and and um, uh, eventually went to to work one summer in a fish hatchery on Lake Tahoe. And it was there that uh, he met his first wife, um, Carol Henning. Uh, Carol and her sister uh, happened to visit the fish hatchery one day. They were on vacation. They lived in San Francisco and they'd come up on vacation. They were kind of uh, looking at various points of interest around the lake. And this was one of them. And Steinbeck happened to be working that day and and they hit it off right away. And, and, uh, and uh, became very serious about each other in uh, in short order. Uh, Steinbeck and Carol were eventually, they were married in 1930. Um, she read some of his early work, including the the, the novel that he worked on uh, in those two winters that he spent at Lake Tahoe uh, taking care of the, the big house. Um, and this was, um, this was a, <laughs> a book that eventually was called Cup of Gold. And it's a pirate story. Uh, set in the 1600s in the Caribbean, uh, based on um, a, a real uh, a real life pirate named Henry Morgan, inspired by his life. Um, Henry Morgan had had led a raid on Panama at one point in his storied career, um, in an effort to um, hijack uh, this vast fortune that was in the capital city in Panama, which he successfully did and uh, managed to uh, make off with. And, and so that's sort of uh, sits at the core of this novel that I guess you'd call it a historical novel that Steinbeck wrote as his was really his first published work. He had showed that to Carol when they first met and uh, she was impressed and she made and so was he because she made some very important suggestions to him. Uh, she typed up the manuscript for him. He wrote in longhand most of his career. And uh, she typed up, uh, she typed it up for him and, and made a number of suggestions that he thought were very perceptive and very helpful. And so uh, they kind of really from the beginning were, were, were partners. Uh, Cup of Gold was published in uh, 1929. Um, it got a few nice reviews. It didn't sell particularly well. It's not a very good book. And it's really not like anything else that Steinbeck would ever write. And, uh, but he was off, he was started. And so uh, that was followed by three or four years of real struggle. He published two other books, uh, one called The Pastors of Heaven, which is, um, it's a story cycle. So that is a collection of short stories that are related to each other and in which certain characters and certain scenes and certain locations recur. And that all uh, point to uh, one or more larger themes. Um, and that's an interesting book. Uh, also got some nice reviews. Sold not much better than Cup of Gold. But, but people did notice that there was this guy, 
Steinbeck that had begun to write and who seemed to have um, uh, a bit of a flair for writing about uh, the place he was from because Pastors of Heaven was set in the Salinas Valley and um, and unlike uh, the pirate book, really dealt with um, people and places that Steinbeck knew something about. So that was an important uh, transition for him. Uh, that book was followed by another somewhat obscure uh, book called uh, To a God Unknown. And this was a book that Steinbeck worked on for years. It was based on an unfinished play that one of his Stanford friends had uh, written as an undergraduate. And uh, and uh, this friend had actually given it to Steinbeck and said, listen, if you can make anything out of this, feel free to feel free to do it. I, I, I can't I can't finish it. It's terrible. I, I don't know what to do with it. Well, Steinbeck took this uh, this play, which was called The Green Lady, and turned it into a novel called To a God Unknown, which is a kind of a strange pantheistic themed book in which um, a, a struggling farmer in the Salinas Valley uh, develops a, uh, a kind of religious relationship with a tree and with a, uh, and with a glade that sits on a hilltop on his, on his property. And um, it, it's sort of mystical. It's sort of convoluted. It's kind of racy in places. And, um, it's an interesting attempt to get at uh, themes of good and evil, which always fascinated Steinbeck. He always thought that there was um, this ongoing struggle between good and uh, evil in the world and good and evil inside of the people who inhabit the world. And so this was also an exploration of that. And um, nobody knew what to make of that book. The reviews were all over the place, but once again, Everyone recognized that this young uh, fellow named Steinbeck had um, an interesting affinity for that part of California, that place and those people that were so unlike um, uh, the settings and the people that were appearing in, you know, uh, other fictional works of the time. So this is this is the time when we have Hemingway and Elliot have really kind of uh, Hemingway and Elliot and um, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and, and uh, a number of other writers have kind of redefined <clears throat> what American literature is going to be about after the Great War, which which kind of was this cleaving point in history and and in art. And um, and Steinbeck was writing books that weren't anything like what these other writers were doing. So this also set him apart. So he was this kind of sweet, generous figure. Um, nobody quite knew what to make of him other than he was interesting, but hadn't really figured out yet what to do with his talent. So um, that all changed in 1935 um, when he published a book called Tortilla Flat, which was uh, set in... Monterey, California, a place that he knew intimately, and which concerned um, uh, this group of outsiders uh, who lived on the Monterey Peninsula. They lived high up on the sort of the backbone of the peninsula. Monterey Peninsula is basically a kind of a, uh, a mountain range that jets out into the Pacific Ocean on the south uh, side of Monterey Bay. And up in the highlands, up away from Cannery Row, up in, in, uh, in the forest, um, uh, was these group of people called Paisanos. And they were 
a mixture of indigenous people and Spanish descendants of the Spanish who had originally settled the area. <clears throat> and they were the, this kind of carefree cadre of uh, people with no visible means of support who kind of lived this kind of day-to-day life uh, in which they were very happy to have little in the way of material possessions, little in the way of, you know, quotidian obligations. Um, they were just people that lived happily from from uh, one day to the next. And, and Steinbeck had learned uh, from someone there, a mutual friend who knew a lot about uh, the Paisanos. He'd learned all about them and, and kind of captured both the, um, the spirit of their lifestyle, but also the essence of the way they actually got by and the way they sounded and the way they spoke and how they interacted with each other. And um, uh, so Tortilla Flat is this lovely comedic novel about um, uh, this Paisano culture and, and about one particular um, uh, notorious uh, Paisano who kind of became a, a leader, uh, someone that everyone uh, respected and looked to uh, in that community. And um, uh, Tortilla Flat was a big success. And it, it really, um, uh, it was uh, a book that cemented his relationship with um, his agents that he had by then and with the publisher in New York. And that launched him onto this amazing five-year run uh, in which he would publish um, a book every year, each one better than the last and more consequential than the last. And uh, the books from that period that that uh, begins with Tortilla Flat also include In Dubious Battle of Mice and Men, uh, The Long Valley, which is a collection of his short stories, and uh, culminating in 1939 with The Grapes of Wrath, which is his um, masterwork and, and the work for which he is, um, uh, that he's most associated with and probably most remembered for. Although we should say that because of the popularity of, of works like of Mice and Men and The Red Pony, a, a collection of uh, three and arguably four stories um, uh, that everybody reads in high school or many people read in high school, um, he might be a little bit better known to, to people for those than he is for The Grapes of Wrath. But The Grapes of Wrath, <clears throat> I think, is by consensus, you know, his most important work. And so between 1935 and 1939, one year to the next, Steinbeck's um, reputation and influence grew and grew and grew uh, to the point where with um, The Grapes of Wrath, he was pretty much inarguably um, at the very top of the um, list of great American writers from that period, alongside Fitzgerald and Eliot and uh, Hemingway. So um, what happens after that is more complicated, but that is basically his apprenticeship and his rise to fame. Uh, by the end of the 1930s. And, and uh, that period also, of course, is coincides with the Great Depression. And all of those works in one way or another relate to or are informed by the Great Depression, but particularly the Graves of Wrath and of Mice and Men. So um, the title of your book about Steinbeck is Mad at the World. Uh, I think this is probably a good segue to talk about um, uh, why Steinbeck was mad at the world, what angered him, and um, and what motivated him. 
So this was true even in childhood. As a schoolboy, uh, Steinbeck, who was bigger than most of his friends uh, and could take care of himself, uh, really hated bullies. And, and um, he had a friend in, in grade school and all the way through high school named Glenn Graves, who was smaller and tended to get picked on and, and get bullied by some of the other kids. And, and um, somebody asked Steinbeck, one of, one of the other boys asked Steinbeck one time, he said, why, why do you hang out with Glenn Graves all the time? What a loser. And um, Steinbeck said, well, somebody has to look out for him. And, I, and that, he was probably eight years old when he said that. And, but that feeling that he had some responsibility to people who were, weren't as strong as he was, weren't as big as he was, didn't have as much money as his family did, that anyone who was in any way um, uh, dispossessed, uh, or without influence or without means that anybody that was in some way beset by life uh, was someone that he was concerned about and cared about. And uh, obviously during the Great Depression, you know, there were millions of Americans who fit that description. And that's when Steinbeck's anger about um, this inequality that he saw really began to blossom. And it, it's it's present really in all of his books, um, even in a book like Cannery Row, which is a kind of a lighthearted portrait of uh, life on um, on the Monterey waterfront in the 1930s and 1940s, which was such an important part of his life. Uh, even in that book, Steinbeck articulates, usually through other characters, this feeling he had that that Humanity has it all backwards. And in Cannery Row, there's a scene where Doc, his main character, who's modeled again on his friend Ed Ricketts, uh, where Doc says, um, kind of sums up Steinbeck's um, ethos and the thing that makes him tick. And in this scene, Doc simply is musing. He says, you know, what is it about our civilization that all those things that we value generosity, honesty, um, you know, a lack of duplicitousness, um, a guilelessness that that some people have that just causes them to be kind of happy and to not question everything and to not um, lust after things that they can't have. Uh, those, Those qualities friendship, those things that we value in life, those tend to be um, the qualities that are owned by the people who have the least, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the layabouts on Cannery Row, the people with no jobs and, you know, no visible means of support uh, tend to be the nicest people. Whereas people who are motivated by greed and ambition and um, selfishness and ruthlessness tend to be the most successful. It's, it's almost like humanity got it backwards, that um, if you were a good person, you were sort of doomed to fail in a material sense. And if you were, um, if you were, if you were mean-spirited and acquisitive and um, uh, careless about others, they, that was the way you would get ahead. And I think that that was an equation that Steinbeck saw repeated all around him and that made him angry. And more specifically, when he was um, working on the Grapes of Wrath, he had gone into these uh, encampments where, (coughs) excuse me, the migrants who were pouring into California from other parts of uh, the country, uh, excuse me a second, 
from Oklahoma and from the middle part of the country that had been really uh, decimated by the Dust Bowl and by the Great Depression, the, the, these kind of twin um, uh, misfortunes that had really um, caused vast numbers of people to kind of pack up and move to California in search of work that really wasn't there for them. And they ended up in these terrible uh, conditions um, where they couldn't find work or they couldn't find work that paid a living wage. And uh, they were forced to live in these roadside encampments, often in ditches and and uh, open fields. Occasionally, a few lucky ones would end up in these government-run camps there where they were somewhat better off. But Steinbeck spent a lot of time with these people and um, in, in getting ready to write The Grapes of Wrath. And it made him extremely angry. Um, he saw people who were starving to death. He saw children who were dying of measles uh, living in tents. He saw people living in camps that had been flooded out in these torrential rains that ironically came down in California when on these people who had just fled, uh, you know, uh, being dusted out in um, in the middle part of the country. And um, in many cases, these same people were being exploited by the um, by the large farm interests in California, the growers who uh, formed alliances and who hired vigilantes to enforce um, low wages and and, uh, this kind of slave-like behavior that was demanded by people who wanted to work the fields. And so all of that um, just kind of overwhelmed Steinbeck. He he was seething with anger about that. And um, uh, I think that you see in works like Of Mice and Men and The Grapes of Wrath, which is about... um, a family from Oklahoma that packs up their meager belongings and makes this arduous trek to California, thinking that they will find a land of milk and honey and, and that they'll be able to live uh, this wonderful life as, uh, as farm workers. Um, And they find instead nothing. Uh, They find the end of this terrible uh, road that, uh, you know, brings them to disaster. And that's a story that was repeated over and over again. And um, and so you see Steinbeck's anger in uh, The Grapes of Wrath, and you see it in Of Mice and Men, which is a story about uh, two men kind of working their way from one um, uh, situation to another and who really at the end, in the end, have, have nothing. Uh, so... Um, I thought that Steinbeck's best work was really motivated by anger and, and some other critics saw that as well. And I think that is a reasonable way to approach trying to understand his motivation and why he wrote the books he wrote and why he wrote them the way he did. Great. Um, How about Steinbeck and his capacity for empathy? It kind of seems like uh, anger and empathy kind of go hand in hand with him. They really, they really do. They, they are, they are two, um, they are two kind of conjoined parts of his personality. Uh, and again, I mentioned this, you know, even as a kid, you know, he had this capacity for kind of uh, understanding other people. And um, uh, when he was first married to Carol, uh, they liked to take these drives up and down the coast. They, they loved hamburgers, so they'd always stop periodically to get a hamburger. They measured these drives and, and how many hamburgers it took to get from point A to point B. And, um, uh, and 
one of the reasons that, that they loved stopping at these little diners is that they would sit down, they'd get a booth and sit down and Steinbeck would eavesdrop on the customers, on the on the counterman who was frying the hamburgers and he would listen to the way they spoke and, and, um, and, uh, listen to what they talked about and, and, uh, what they were concerned about. Uh, he'd done the same thing when he was in high school and in college in the summertime, he would take a job. Um, uh, so, so he worked at a sugar beet factory periodically, but he also worked on some of the farms there in the Salinas Valley and worked alongside, these migrant farm workers, Filipinos and, and uh, Japanese and, and uh, other people that were hired to do farm labor in California, listened to the way they talked and they liked him. He was, he was, um, uh, he was friendly and he could tell stories and he would, he cared about what they cared about. And, uh, and uh, so he, he always had this affinity for the working class uh, for the ordinary person that a lot of other writers just didn't have. These were often people that would be invisible um, in our culture. In, on Cannery Row, the, there were these guys that sort of hung around that, that um, uh, you know, most people would just pass by on the sidewalk without even looking at. They were, they were bums. They were people that just didn't do anything, didn't have any place to go, didn't have any place to be, um, and didn't have any way to get ahead in life. Well, Steinbeck saw them differently. He saw them as, as human beings. Um, and I think that was probably, in the end, his, his great talent was that he saw, uh, he saw everyone as fully human. Uh, not just people who were prominent, not just people who had money, not just people who had power. In fact, on the, to the contrary, he thought the people who had the deepest and most profound humanity were people that didn't have any of those things. And so, um, you know, I, I think that makes him unique among 20th century American writers. I don't think anybody else, there was, of course, there were other people who wrote, um, about, um, about, uh, social and economic uh, inequality and um, uh, in very compelling ways. But nobody else quite had Steinbeck's unique ability to kind of recreate those people on the page to make them come to life and sound and act as they actually did. I think that is his great talent. And, um, and once again, the thing that is uh, at the center really of all of his books, if you look closely, you will find, you will find it there. So what else should listeners know about Steinbeck, the man, um, some of his defining <laughs> characteristics? He's, he's a complicated guy. <laughs> he's a complicated guy. Barbara, let's, let's, let's stipulate that nobody's perfect. So Steinbeck <laughs> is a, Steinbeck's an important writer. Um, not every one of his books is as good as his best. Um, he wrote a number of bad books, although many of those were successful. Uh, after the Grapes of Wrath, just about anything Steinbeck wrote was um, uh, was widely read, and uh, he made a lot of money as a writer um, in the 40s and, and 50s and, and 60s, even though nothing that he wrote in those decades uh, lived up to the Grapes of Wrath. He's not unusual in that regard. Many writers spend their careers trying to live up to an early success. Steinbeck was... Um, 37 when the grapes of wrath came out and um you know it's his most it's his most important book his best book um as a man apart from being a writer um he was married three times 
Um, he was um, uh, really, I don't think, faithful to any of the three wives, with the possible exception of the last one, uh, Elaine Scott, uh, who he married later on in life and who was the only one of the three that really seemed to make him happy. But he was, he was not a good husband to Carol or to his second wife, Gwen Conger. Um, he was a terrible father in many respects. He was a loving father, a father who was concerned that he had two sons, uh, Thomas and, and uh, John the Fourth. He wanted both Tom and John, Johnny, to um, to learn early on that he would not always be there to take care of them, and that the world was a um, a difficult place in a place in which uh, they would, for the most part, have to make their own decisions and make their own way, and they needed to know that. And he was um, he was strict in making them learn that early on. He was a um, he was a man who could hold his liquor, but who was a very heavy drinker. And many of the difficulties difficulties that he had with his wives, um, with his friends, and with his sons was a result of uh, very often the influence of alcohol. Uh, like a lot of writers, he ch- he drank too much, and it influenced his um, his behavior uh, more times than were. Uh, good for anybody who knew him. It was particularly true in his second marriage to Gwen. Um, he, I think, uh, resented his sons as to the extent that they interfered with his work. Um, though again, he, he could be, uh, he could be a doting father. He could, um, uh, he could be a very caring father, but it's worth noting that he sent them off to boarding school at an early age. I, I think in part to, um, instill in them this independence he felt they had to have, but also, quite honestly, to get them out of the house so that he could work. And um, that was ultimately, I think, not helpful to them. It wasn't helpful to uh, Gwen, his second wife, who was their mother. And uh, it probably wasn't really that good for him either, but that's that's how it was. So um, Steinbeck is not somebody that um, I think I would have been good friends with had I had a chance to meet him and spend time with him. Um, he was a difficult guy, and um, uh, but left us this body of work that is very important and very compelling, and that I believe speaks to the time that we live in today. I mean, this is one of the other things that drew me to Steinbeck, is I, I thought, well, here's a guy who wrote about a climate catastrophe during the Dust Bowl. Here's a guy who wrote about income inequality, here is a guy who wrote about forced human migration. Well, these are these are the things that are animating so much of our political um, uh, discourse these days that he he really has to be seen as tremendously relevant right now, and I, I think that that is um, that is true. But in terms of uh, Steinbeck writ large, uh, no guarantees that a good writer a great writer even, is going to be uh, a wonderful fellow uh, in uh, in real life. And, uh, and Steinbeck is no exception to that. He was a complicated person. He had friends. He had close friends. He had many, many people who looked up at, at him and and who were devoted to him and, and um, uh, who worked with him throughout his life, his editors and his agents and and uh, some of his fellow writers um, he got along with great others he didn't 
Um, but that's just kind of the way it goes. Well, before we wrap up, do you want to say a little bit more about what um, Americans and Californians today can learn from Steinbeck? And I mean, I really, I really think his relevance for the 21st century um, is uh, compelling and indelible. Well, I do too, Barbara, and I, I'm glad it seems that way to you. And I think it does to a lot of people who read. It's, uh, it's important to know that John Steinbeck remains one of the most widely read American authors of the 20th century, uh, even now, uh, more than 50 years after his death in, in 1968. All of his work is in print. You can walk into any bookstore and buy just about any of his books and and um, and read them. Uh, and so on, on that count alone, um, Steinbeck remains relevant. We, we need to, um, if we're going to have any sense of history, if we're going to have any sense of um, our literary legacy and, and where uh, this great body of American literature comes from and who figures prominently in it, uh, then we really need to read and understand uh, John Steinbeck. Uh, more directly to your point, what, what does he say to us today? Um, he says what I alluded to earlier, that, that uh, all of humanity uh, deserves to be considered on an equal footing, regardless of the unequal standing any particular human being uh, might have relative to everyone else, that, that we have to stop. Uh, we have to try to alleviate our disregard for people who aren't like us, uh, people who come from a different culture, people who practice a different religion, people who are a different color, a different race, um, uh, who have different values, uh, who have achieved different levels of success in life, that all of those things that so often and so easily still lead to the um, uh, these cleavages in, uh, in society, that these divisions that we struggle to overcome, uh, even now, you know, after decades or centuries of living with them, that we need to, that we need to be more open to the idea that everyone deserves, um, an equal place in our culture and in our society. I think that, I think that's what he believed. I think that's how he tried to portray, um, uh, the people in his books. And I think that's what we can, I think that's what we can take from them, uh, uh, today. And, you know, beyond that, I think we should just, um, uh, try to appreciate the fact that, um, uh, writers come in many different flavors and, and, um, under many different brands and with many different points of view. And, uh, and it's worth taking a look at all of them that have endured, because there is always something in these works that that um, uh, you know come down to us from one generation to the next that is worth revisiting, and I, I certainly think that um, we can revisit Steinbeck profitably these days. Terrific, Bill. I want to thank you so much for uh, being on the show today and for sharing your work, for sharing Steinbeck with us. Uh, it's just been wonderful. I've really enjoyed this. I want to remind our listeners that um, Bill's Mad at the World is a Joy of History book club selection for November. That's November 13th. So if you're interested in um, learning more about Steinbeck and about William Souder's treatment of, um, of the author, 
please join us. Go to thejoyofhistory.com to uh, learn more and register. And Bill will be joining uh, that book club session for um, a Q&A. So, um, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. It was, uh, it was my pleasure, and, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Take care.